0: Even though today's world is obsessed with happiness, many measures would indicate its attainment is on the decline. What if happiness isn't a lovely, attainable destination, but instead a journey of learning to embrace day-to-day suffering? And does happiness define the good anyway? Welcome to Season 1, Episode 8 of the Evolve Faster Podcast. I'm Scott Ely. The road to happiness is inked in suffering. As he sat cross-legged on the oily floor of the mechanic shop where he'd been sleeping, the smell of exhaust filled his nostrils and made him cough. He pulled a well-worn news article from his pocket, staring intently at his forearm as he did so. The story featured an interview with his prominent parents. They were distraught about what had become of their only son. According to the article, he'd gone missing over a year ago and appeared to be gone without a trace. Alex looked down at his arm again, this time reading and rereading the tattoo a few times, a mental trick he often used to comfort himself. He was having one of those moments of doubt today about what he'd done, which was to run away from his life of privilege and attempt to start his life from scratch. On the toughest days like this, he'd think hard about giving up and just turning it all around. Unlike most people sneaking into garages to sleep, he had a simple plan B. He could easily walk right back into his former gilded life with open arms awaiting him. But this time, his tattoo Jedi mind trick didn't work. With his head weary from the unhealthy fumes he'd been breathing overnight, Alex's thoughts instead kept wandering back to his lessons. It was these daily moments with Mr. Wright, learning about anything and everything, that he missed most from his former life. He recalled the quote Mr. Wright used to say all the time when referring to people in history overcoming their troubles. Alex now said the Morris Mandel quote aloud, The darkest hour only has 60 minutes. With only some half-wrecked cars as an audience, His words echoed in an unsettling fashion against the garage walls. If this quote were correct, these were the slowest damn minutes of his life, and it seemed so dark at the moment that he had no idea what was around the next curve. Mr. Wright had a quote for everything, and made Alex memorize them as well. At least once per session, Alex would have to retrieve some quote from the mental database he'd learned, and see if he could use it to understand some deep insight about the topic at hand. Mr. Wright always said the keys to life were just a few pithy aphorisms and quotes away, if you are willing to pay attention to what it takes to live by them. Just over a year ago, Alex was sitting in his study with his private home tutor. Alex always looked forward to his daily sessions with Mr. Wright. No matter what Alex asked, Mr. Wright gave Alex something to think about. His answers usually weren't answers. They were more like deeper versions of the question Alex had just asked. Even if Alex was entirely sure what the old professor was saying, he delivered the insight and inspired dialogue with a certain style that Alex loved. Alex came from a very wealthy and influential family. His full name was Alexander Sidney Hollingsworth III. He hated his pompous-sounding name, so he insisted that Mr. Wright call him Alex. It was a generational name, and that made Alex feel proud. And it was also somewhat cool to share a name with a couple of influential Alexander III's from history. For his entire life, Alex had top tutors educating him about literature, arts, history, philosophy, science, and so on. It was decided early on that Alex would be entirely homeschooled. His family was prominent, and there was fear for his safety and security. Being an only child, his parents just couldn't take the risk of something happening to him. And this also gave them the unique opportunity to shape his mind aggressively. It was their goal to provide him with what they thought would be an enormous edge over his peers due to the quality and quantity of his personalized education. This was how Mr. Wright, an erudite and wise old polymath nearing retirement age as a professor, was hired for a pretty penny to teach Alex both traditional education as well as the ways of the world. Mr. Wright was his current and favorite of all his tutors so far. His family had so much money and owned so much property that Alex would never have to worry about finances for his entire lifetime. You could say that Alex, in theory, had everything he needed to be happy. But the reality was, Alex didn't feel happy. He couldn't put his finger on the reason for his unhappiness but he assumed it had something to do with this sheltered way of life. Although he'd read and discussed all the various exciting things about living with his tutors love, hate, compassion, death, birth, sickness, etc., the realities of actually experiencing life was a mystery to him. His parents made sure all essential activities happened at home so that Alex had as little need to go out as possible. And even when he did, the experiences were so shielded by bodyguards that it hardly felt real. His parents always described the world as a place full of unneeded things that would only stray Alex from his path. They just wanted Alex to become the best person he could be and felt this was the only way. He never knew what it felt like to be cheated, loved by a woman, hated by a man, bullied or swindled. He never experienced struggling to make money or not having food to eat. Alex was a person who, in over two decades of living, never encountered a single hardship. Even when people in his family got sick or died, Alex simply never heard from them again and was told stories about them having to relocate instead. But to him, what he had was a normal life. In the last couple years, however, he'd started to feel very disconnected, wrong and unfulfilled. And he wondered if other people were thinking the same about their lives. Was this normal? Were people with all of these problems and sadness he'd read about even more unhappy? All of this was heavier on his mind because Mr. Wright had told him yesterday that the upcoming lesson was on the philosophical, psychological and neuroscientific theories on happiness. He'd spent a good part of the previous night making lists of questions. So when the lesson started, Alex looked at Mr. Wright and asked, Mr. Wright, I thought today's lesson was about happiness, but you said we'd be discussing neuroscience. What do studies about the brain have to do with feelings? I thought only philosophers and poets talked about such things as happiness, love, and sadness. Mr. Wright smiled and answered, You're right, Alexander. Please, Mr. Wright. About once a week or so, he'd tease Alex about his distaste for his full name. Mr. Wright continued with a laugh. Sorry, Alex. But yes, although poets and psychologists have traditionally been the dominant force when it comes to the study and management of feelings, it's also something many forms of science have a deep interest in as well. Especially in the last couple decades, the Western world, at least, is somewhat obsessed with the idea of finding and creating happiness in their lives. Although happiness seems like a strange thing to pursue, doesn't it? As the world has slowly started to normalize to some level of basic needs being met in developed nations at least, food, shelter, etc., you would think that might result in happiness being on the rise as well. But many indicators point to the opposite. For example, a recent study showed that almost 40% of baby boomers and almost 50% of Generation Z are lonely. That's a very sad statistic for young people to have. The more developed a country gets, the less connected the people become with each other. Likely, because technology makes it easier to not have to connect physically. Loneliness is on the rise, even as people are supposedly more social online. I was traveling in Asia recently, and a food chain I stopped into that appeared to be targeting Millennials and Generation Z had a tagline of, We have Wi-Fi, so you don't have to talk to one another. As he was thinking about this, Alex remembered a Beatles song, about which he'd written down a question. Do you know the song called Happiness is a Warm Gun by the Beatles? You know they're my favorite band, so of course I had to ask about his use of this as a metaphor for today's topic. It's never made sense to me. It was a phrase that advertised the happiness of firing a gun. But to me, it's a fascinating phrase to think about. Can happiness really be found in firing a gun? Metaphorically speaking, maybe happiness isn't always flowers, sunshine, and rainbows, but also, firing a gun at something as well? Is that what it takes to be happy?" Alex sighed. Sometimes, the more I learn about the world, the less I seem to understand about it. Mr. Wright replied with a nod that showed he agreed with this last bit of wisdom. I'm not even sure if Lennon looked at it that way. But I suppose life does require us to fire a shot or two, now and then, to be happy. Or, what if instead, it's all about rethinking that negative thinking? Alex replied, you mean by replacing it with happy thoughts instead? Mr. Wright smiled, reminded that his very intelligent student was also still a very young human being. No, not really. That isn't exactly possible. Do you understand why? It's more about using negative thinking as a productive instead of a destructive tool. Let me start explaining by sharing some neuroscience about the connection between happiness and our brain. It might clear up some things and either way, we'll kick off our discussion. Yes, please do, Alex replied, excited to finally get some insight into how to make himself happier. The one question he'd always been afraid to ask. For quite some time, neuroscience has been searching for that little part of the brain which makes us happy. A Japanese scientist named Wataro Sato and his team concluded that happiness is a combination of happy emotions and satisfaction of life. Feelings, such as happiness, can be measured and even located in our brain. Also, that the place where happiness appears in the brain is the part that became active with consciousness. Alex replied to test his understanding. So, does this mean that somewhere in our brain there's a happiness factory of some sort and you're telling me we're nothing more than the consumer of whatever that factory provides? In a sense, we don't have a choice. Mr. Wright was impressed by Alex's thoughts. Well, yes, that's an interesting way to imagine it. And you might be on to something with that last part. But that wasn't what I was trying to say. The point I was trying to make was that each person has their own personal happiness factory, as you've called it. Through life, each person creates their own unique and subjective happiness. So what makes you happy might not make me happy. The same thing applies to sadness. In a way, Both happiness and sadness are subjective, wouldn't you say? The next thing Sato is hoping to understand is the neural mechanism behind the whole process. So what do you think, Alex? Once we understand the mechanisms of happiness, will we be happier? Alex thought about it for a moment. I'm not sure how telling someone what part of the brain creates happiness can make them happier. I guess it's an interesting thing to know but I don't think it would help me personally understand it any better. It was clear to Mr. Wright that something bigger was on his mind, so Alex took a deep breath and decided he had to share more of his feelings if he hoped to get anything out of the conversation. He continued, So, to be completely honest, Mr. Wright, I'm interested in this topic because I feel unhappy. I think. It's weird. I don't feel happy if, in fact, I even know what it would feel like. For example, I realize, of course, that I'm in a privileged position. I have a top educator like you coming to my home instead of me going to college with everyone else to learn. I'm not an idiot, of course. I realize my family is very wealthy. I don't want for anything, technically. I realize the opportunities I have are highly envied by many people. But still, I can't say I'm happy, Mr. Wright. I'm definitely not sad, but I'm not happy. And shouldn't I be happy considering everything my family enables for me? I've never wanted for anything. I have all the conditions to be happy that I've ever read about. Still, I'm not, and I don't understand why. I've been wondering if maybe I don't even know what happiness is. Mr. Wright gave it a good thought and then replied. Well, that's something I think you need to figure out on your own, Alex. I know this probably sounds like a cop-out or cliched advice. You might think I should have something more insightful to say, but you know my feelings on cliches and wise quotes. Everything you need to know about life is embedded within them. If you're willing to invest the time to discover the meanings beneath the words through your own experiences." Mr. Wright stood up and flashed one of his curious grins. I'd like to share something with you, Alex, if that's okay with you. He began to unbutton his shirt and, seeing Alex's reaction, laughed out loud. Don't worry, it's nothing that's going to ruin your innocent mind. Mr. Wright pulled off his shirt and turned his back to Alex, revealing an intricate set of bizarre-looking tattoos on his back. Alex had seen tattoos in books and movies, of course, but he'd never actually seen one in person before. But these tattoos didn't look like anything Alex had ever seen before. They were combinations of animals, both real and imaginary, shapes, scrolling vertical texts, and many other tribal-looking symbols. Most of the outlining itself looked like some sort of ancient language. Alex had studied root languages, like Latin, and knew at least the basics about some of the oldest written languages. This writing looked a bit like Sanskrit, done in a slightly drunken fashion some lines were very clean and others jagged his back looked like one giant tattoo but upon further inspection it was clear there was actually a patchwork of different tattoos in a similar style weaved together into a meaningful tapestry alex looked stunned mr wright had this habit to say or do things that came out of nowhere but this was more extreme than anything previous. I'm not even sure what to say. It's amazing. I've never seen anything like it. I can't believe you've had this all along and I never knew about it. What does it all mean? And what's the story behind it? Professor laughed gently. Well, I can assume from your reaction that you've never heard of or seen yantric tattoos before. It's an ancient and sacred tattoo tradition practiced by the Khmer people, an ethnic group native to Cambodia that also has deep ties to traditions of Hindu and Buddhism. It's a mystical art form that has symbolic lineage to the religions and mythologies from these parts of Southeast Asia. Taken individually, these simplistic, diagram tattoos have different purposes depending on what the person chooses. One protection, for example, is from evil and hardship. Then, in combination, as the mythology goes, the benefits compound. And visually, there's a growing complexity of the intertwined symbiology. I've traveled all over the world and experimented with many types of experiences. This is one of the reasons I think your parents hired me. At a certain time in my life, the mythology of Yantric tattoos really spoke to me when I felt like I was always seeking and never finding my path. Every time I'd go back to Thailand, I'd get another tattoo. You see, these tattoos are guided by what you need out of life at that time to be happy. Maybe it's protection, maybe it's inner peace. The tattoo ceremony itself is very personal between the subject and the Yantric artist. They trained for many years in the art the ancient language, the related Buddhism, Hinduism, mythology, and superstition. And then, the tattoos are done in about a quarter of the time that it takes to give a regular modern tattoo, with a single needle affixed to the end of a thin staff. The precision is amazing, considering the delivery mechanism. Of course, it's just superstition. But when I see my back every day, it's a reminder to me what happiness truly is to me. Alex looked confused and a bit disappointed. So now you're saying that happiness is a tattoo? Mr. Wright, that seems almost more confusing to me than happiness is a warm gun. Mr. Wright smiled as he put his shirt back on, clearly deciding to not answer the question. This was normal for him. He'd leave Alex thinking instead of finishing specific lines of thought. It used to drive Alex crazy. But he stopped trying to force Mr. Wright into answers a long time ago. At times like this, it only got more frustrating to try to get an answer out of him. He just continued to answer his questions with more questions. Alex made a note to think about it later, and they went on. Later that evening, Alex was back in his own study of sorts. It was a huge room with walls lined with books and music. Besides his time with Mr. Wright every week, this room and its ever-expanding contents were the only things that kept him sane. As he listened to some new music, he scanned his notes from the morning session. Although on one hand the tattoos were unexpected, on the other hand, they made total sense. Mr. Wright was an interesting character. One thing that now made even more sense was his preference for Eastern-focused perspectives in the lessons. From the intensity of those tattoos, it would have to mean something to you. Mr. Wright had once told him in a previous lesson on Eastern philosophy that lacking self-control and trying too hard to control yourself are extremes. Allowing yourself to succumb to either of them can't lead a person towards true happiness. Happiness can only be found in the well-balanced middle path. But come on, using sadness as a productive tool What in the hell did these Buddhists mean by that? To Alex, it sounded as if they were trying to say you need water to light a fire. Or as that Bowie line he loved said, putting out fire with gasoline. The whole idea of the middle path sounded like just another cliche to him. Alex again thought about his life and the problem he had. He thought about Mr. Wright's words and forced himself to compare his situation to the middle path concept. Looking at it through this lens, he decided his life was out of balance. He was tipping towards one extreme. He frowned and surmised that it wasn't his fault. He just happened to be born into this unbalanced surrounding of forced happiness where flowers supposedly bloomed 24/7. Alex thought aloud to himself as he reviewed his recent notes. It can't possibly be that always getting what you want is what life is about. If there's the extreme of everything being perfect, then there must be the other side of the coin, the dark side, where everything is not perfect. But then, what does suffering look like? How does it feel to suffer? Would he understand happiness better? Or maybe even actually be happy if he'd been born the opposite? No, he thought. That sounds even worse. Alex couldn't shake the line of thought. He felt like a little kid wondering what snow tastes like. To him, the idea of suffering was a bit like a monster from a bedtime story, fictitious and non-existent. Of course, he realized this might be the most entitled irony in the history of ironies. He suffered because he didn't know real suffering. Well done, he thought. It sounded like he was taking first world problems to entirely new lows. Alex realized he had to do something. He decided to go and take a random walk through the city to see what other people do on an average day. It sounded utterly ridiculous for this to be a big deal, especially at his age. But for Alex, this was a big deal. He had to try to understand what was making him unhappy. Does happiness define a good life? And is happiness achievable as many quotes he'd memorized seemed to imply? The next morning, Alex snuck out, armed with only some money he took from his father's study and some borrowed wisdom about the world from Mr. Wright. He'd been thinking about this for years, so getting out wasn't difficult. Staying out for a whole day without getting caught would be more tricky, but he had a plan. Their house and land were ridiculously large for the size of their family, so there was always somewhere to hide out. He felt stupid for sneaking out. But he also felt exhilarated and a little scared in a childish way. Was he just being a spoiled rich kid, not appreciating what he had? But then again, he was, in fact, a spoiled rich kid. So the shoe fit. He'd researched and read about a modern phenomenon of a small group within Western society known as crusties. These were usually upper to middle class kids in their 20s and 30s mostly, many of whom had bank accounts who acted like they were homeless. They were supposedly anti-establishment and would camp out with packs of other crusties and lots of dogs in front of well-known commercial brands stinking up their entrances. Modern-day fake gypsies with hidden safety nets. He made a mental note to never let himself become a crusty. Aim high, Alex, he laughed to himself. But then again, he was only planning to leave for a day. As he was walking the streets that first day, he felt like a fish out of water. He was very self-conscious about staring at people to try to figure them out, but he was enjoying his childish research. He'd luckily thought to bring sunglasses in his homemade bug-out bag that he'd cobbled together, making it a little easier to stare. The first thing he noticed was that people on the street always seemed to be rushing somewhere, as if they had a time limit to beat and failing to do so meant trouble. The pace of his controlled life was very rigid, consistent, and unrushed, so all of this felt a little overwhelming. Alex spent most of the day observing. He was a bit afraid to speak to anyone at first, but he was beginning to feel more comfortable out here. He was slowly realizing he needed to interact if he was going to figure out anything meaningful about his happiness conundrum. As the day wore into evening, he felt like he had the descending darkness as a little more cover for his cluelessness. He decided to start by trying to see if other people were happy or not. Because the people he saw every day, his parents and Mr. wright never frowned or really even showed any emotion. One of the first quotes about happiness, which Mr. Wright had made him memorize, came to mind. He used the opportunity to test out his voice since he hadn't spoken since yesterday. There are no greater wretches in the world than many of those whom people in general take to be happy. His pipes were a little dry, but they still worked. He looked through several bars and restaurant windows at the people inside as he walked down one busy street. Some people sitting looked like they were having a good time talking to one another. Others, who were sitting alone, usually seemed as if they were bothered by something. So did this quote by Seneca, one of the most famous of the Stoic philosophers, mean that people he saw who looked happy were faking it? And would that mean the people who didn't look happy were actually happy for some other reason? This made him feel like he was talking to Mr. Wright in his own head. Each question about the meaning of the quote just seemed to raise more questions. God damn it, he thought. He realized this wasn't going to be easy. But he was out here, so he had to keep trying. In another bar, he saw two men who clearly had too much to drink. But it did appear as if they were having a good time. They were laughing loudly and did seem to be happier than the other people he'd wondered about being wretches, to use Seneca's term. Other people around them would often turn around in disgust as these two men had their fun together. Alex understood the repulsion the other people felt, but he couldn't deny the apparent happiness of the two drunks. Is this what the other side of the coin looks like? Alex wondered. He'd walked into the bar and was now standing close enough to the guys that they could see him staring. One of them said with a funny look, can we help you kid? Not sure how to reply, Alex shrugged his shoulders and gave an honest answer. i just noticed how all the people in the bar were looking at you, but you both seemed to be happy. Like a squirrel getting to high ground to check if the surrounding is safe, the drunk stood up and observed the people in the room. I didn't even notice they were here, he said with a huge laugh. You can tell they don't want to be here. Just look at those faces. Losing balance, he stumbled back into his chair. Observing the drunks, Alex mumbled a quote, supposedly by Gustave Flaubert, to be stupid, selfish, and have good health are three requirements for happiness. Though if stupidity is lacking, all is lost. This quote seemed to Alex like it might apply here, although Alex actually had no idea what it meant. And, in fact, the words also meant nothing to his inebriated friend. You could almost hear the alcohol-lubricated gears in his brain grinding, but he did seem to like the stupidity part and ran with it. That's right. Without being stupid, you can't be happy. You see all these people? Oh, they're really, really smart with their faces buried in their laptops and phones. Look at those two. They're together, but they're not even talking. He pointed obnoxiously at a couple. What, are they going to go to another bar after this one to discuss what they're reading on their phones here? But we're... The sentence got cut off when the dramatic flourish of his arm, accompanying his words, caused his cocktail glass to slip from his hand and shatter loudly on the tiled floor. Alex looked around curiously at the different reactions as this whole scene unfolded. Some laughed at the drunks, the others sighed uncomfortably. The couple, who were the target of his judgment, had looked up, but then averted their gaze when the glass shards began to fly. Laughter on one side, discomfort on the other. Two extremes of the same spectrum in balance. This reminded Alex of something about Aristotle he'd learned from Mr. Wright. One thing Aristotle focused on was on finding and understanding balance in our lives, which he called the golden middle. You must eat, or you'll die, but overeating isn't something you should do. He remembered it just now because Mr. Wright had used an analogy that if Aristotle were alive today, he wouldn't have any problem with you going out and getting drunk from time to time. But if you started to drink to the extent where it ruined your life, he would probably stop being your drinking buddy. He was actually starting to understand Mr. Wright's thing for quotes. He still didn't really understand either of the quotes he'd tried on for size so far. But by using and trying to understand them, deeper insights came out of the conversations that ensued. They were sort of like lenses through which to inspect life experiences, which then led to more ideas and better questions. Aristotle also thought happiness was subjective. What's balanced for one person isn't for another. One person needs three coffees in the morning, while someone else needs only one. Mr. Wright's questions echoed in Alex's mind. So what do you think, Alex? Would you say one is right and the other is wrong in this scenario? If we bring this simple coffee example on the subject of happiness, it's pretty much the same. It's the individualistic nature that asks for every person to take their own road in life, but acknowledging that extremes are rarely going to make sense. Alex tried to apply these ideas to the drunks in the bar scenario he'd been analyzing. What brought the two men happiness apparently didn't bring happiness to everyone around them. So who was right in this situation? The two drunken men now laughing about the fact that he'd accidentally tossed his cocktail across the floor? Or the second group who felt uncomfortable being there? Was it fair for one to be happy at the other's expense? He searched his mind, but he had no answers. Things were starting to get a little ugly with his drunk friends as they argued with the waiter. So he used the chaos of the moment to exit the bar quietly and continued on his journey. The street of bars appeared to be ending up ahead, so he took a left turn. After a couple more left and rights, he ended up in a dimly lit and somewhat shady-looking street. There he noticed what seemed to be another bar with a red light in front of the entrance. On the other side of the road, Alex noticed an expensive car. The place had darkened windows so Alex couldn't see inside. He wasn't an idiot. Alex knew this was likely a brothel or some sort of strip club. The sign was hard to read, but the word pleasure was clearly part of the title. Looking at the car and trying to imagine who the driver might be, Alex quoted Bertrand Russell aloud to the street. To be without some of the things you want is an indispensable part of happiness. As he tried to process how this quote implied that living without pleasure clubs supposedly might make the owner of this car happier, it reminded him of an ancient Greek theory of happiness called Epicureanism. The basics of this philosophy of Epicurus was that pleasure was the highest good a human being could achieve. At first, Alex couldn't understand what hedonism and pleasure had to do with deep and philosophical insights on happiness. Mr. Wright, in a deadpan manner, told him that in ancient Greece, being a philosopher is what got you into bed with someone. But then he explained that by pleasure, Epicurus wasn't referring to sex, drugs, or whatever forms of physical escapism that come to one's dirty mind. 2,000 years ago, the word hedonism didn't have the same colloquial meaning it has today. To Epicurus, pleasure was the greatest good and the absence of all pain and desires. The way of attaining this pleasure was through living a modest life and continuously gaining knowledge. Epicurus focused more on the pleasures of an evolving mind rather than on physical pleasures. To Alex, that didn't seem quite right. So, he asked Mr. Wright if we continually need to work hard to achieve happiness. To Alex, it appeared as if Epicurus thought simple pleasures were not an option and only hard work brought happiness. Let me start like this, Alex. Instead of saying, to achieve happiness, pursuing happiness would be more appropriate. We can take it even further by saying the pursuit is happiness. We often forget to be happy with what we currently have by overthinking about the things we don't have. This doesn't mean you should be satisfied with your current situation. You shouldn't. What it means is that you can only move forward by accepting what you currently have. To put it more elegantly, Epicurus said, do not spoil what you have by desiring what you have not. Remember that what you now have was once among the things you only hoped for. Never satisfied to have given all the answers, Mr. Wright had continued. But Alex, this raises another question. Is it possible that we simply fail to notice when we are actually happy? Alex, for once, was able to fight fire with fire and reply with a quote of his own to Mr. Wright. One of Alex's favorite writers was Kurt Vonnegut, In his collections of essays called A Man Without a Country, Vonnegut wrote, And I urge you to please notice when you are happy and explain or murmur or think at some point, if this isn't nice, I don't know what is. The reply made Mr. Wright laugh proudly. Alex now wondered if the owner of the expensive car was happy. Would he be inside this pleasure hut if he were? Or is that actually what makes him happy? Someone started to exit the building, so Alex kept walking. His last encounter in the bar left him a little nervous to start another one outside some sort of sex shop. After a couple more blocks on a different route back towards the main street, the next thing that caught his eye was a tattoo shop on the corner. He walked up to the window and started looking for anything resembling Mr. Wright's tattoos While some of the animal references and Buddhist symbology looked similar, the tattoos here were much more like standard pop culture fare of the Western world. As he was observing the cliched samples of collections of tattoos of guns, roses, Japanese symbols, and dragons hanging on the wall, a rough-looking man approached him from inside the empty shop. His skin looked gray in the bluish hue of the fluorescent lights. Thinking of getting a tattoo, kid?" He looked up at the tattoo artist. To Alex, who actually loved science fiction and fantasy novels, the man resembled an orc from Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, and his gruff voice played the part as well. Alex answered, "'No thanks, just passing by.' Unexpectedly, the tattoo artist laughed. "'Good. I didn't take you to be one of those stupid kids that wants a yin-yang or some other silly symbol they don't understand tattooed on their shoulder. I can't tell you how many times I wished I knew how to draw the Chinese character for ignorant goddamn fool, knowing full well they would still parade it proudly across the city and on their Facebook or whatever. For this conversation, Al decided to try something he'd learned in a psychology lesson called mirroring. It was a human bonding mechanism where you copied things like tone and mannerisms to make the person you're connecting with feel more comfortable so he did his best with the colloquial manner of this beast of a man even though he really had no experience talking to anyone who wasn't highly educated no worries i'm not a fan of all that yin-yang crap anyway i'd bet most people don't even know what it actually means the tattoo artist looked at him and you do, huh? Filled with quotes, theories, and facts, but little real wisdom, Alex proudly answered. Actually, I do. Alex recollected his thoughts about everything Mr. Wright had told him and started explaining. The symbol comes from Taoism, which originated in the teachings of Lao Tzu. The yin-yang symbol represents the interconnectivity of seemingly opposite forces. You can't have light without darkness, happiness without sadness. He paused, deciding if he should also steal another one of Mr. Wright's silly remarks. It seemed like something this guy would like, so he did. And of course, you can't have peanut butter without jelly. He saw the guy's positive reaction and knew his trick had worked, so he finished his thoughts. The dots within the symbol mean that at the core of light is darkness, and at the core of darkness is light, In a similar way, at the core of happiness is sadness. The tattoo artist laughed and remarked, doing a mock clapping with his hands. Well, that's certainly the most formal explanation I've ever heard of it, even from people trying to tell me why they were getting it. You sound a bit like a jukebox packed with fancy words instead of songs, kid. For some reason, Alex enjoyed talking to this huge man. You think? I don't really understand what you just said, kid. But I'd say you're right about at least one part of that. Sadness and happiness do seem to go pretty well together." Alex sighed and answered. He wasn't really comfortable faking who he was in this conversation, and the real him started to take back over. If I'm honest, I'm not sure I understand it either. So yeah, maybe I should get that tattoo after all. The tattoo artist laughed. Allow an uneducated man to give his take on happiness. I dropped out of high school when I was 16, so that's my well-worn excuse for a lack of education. All I know comes from simply living my life with my eyes wide open. Let me try and give you an example of what I think you've just said. I have this childhood friend who has enough money to buy anything he wants. He has everything, but he still isn't happy. Why? Because he doesn't have a partner, someone that he can love. Then you have my son. He's 26 years old and he's been in a happy relationship since he was 16. I'm telling you, when I see him with this girl, it makes me puke. It's as if you're watching some cheap romance movie, but besides that part of his life, he's also unhappy. Why? Because although he has what my friend doesn't have, someone he loves, my son hasn't got any money. He's always searching for silver bullets, so he never sticks with anything long enough to keep cash in his pockets and I can't help them much with it because I haven't got any money either. This shop is all I've got. The point is, people often struggle not just with finding this yin-yang balance you described, but they also get blinded by what they don't have and forget the things they do have. Ironically, the final result is they never get what they're lacking because they waste time daydreaming on the very same thing. I'm always telling both my son and my friend If by some damn miracle, tomorrow you got what you so desired, do you think you'd be happy all of a sudden? Of course not. My friend would enjoy the woman's presence until he got bored and desired something else, and my son would enjoy the money until he got bored and also started to desire something else. Happiness isn't something on the outside. It's in your mindset and where your mindset brings you. If people realized at the core of every happiness is sadness and the other way around, as you said, it would be much easier for them to enjoy right now, no matter how much of something they do or don't have. Unlike when speaking with Mr. Wright, Alex was actually able to process all of the information coming at him in real time. He thought for a second, then replied, Well, what makes you happy? Me? It's simple. The man looked around at the shop. It's my work. I've had this tattoo shop for 20 years. And even at that, it took me too damn long to open it. Everyone always told me having a tattoo shop like this wouldn't bring me money and that it was too much of a risk. And you know what? They were right. Never in these 20 years did I earn enough money to do anything else in life. I hardly leave town. Hell, I hardly leave the goddamn shop most weeks. But here's the thing. I don't feel I need to do anything in my life anymore. I don't need to travel or learn how to fly an airplane. The only thing I ever wanted to do was open a tattoo shop. And when I finally did open it, I just wanted to keep on working in it. That's it. And now I'm still here. The shop's still here. So I'm happy. Alex, not knowing what to say during this pregnant pause, tapped the quote database in his head for something that sounded relevant by quoting shang Zhu. Happiness is the absence of the striving for happiness. Luckily, the guy was deep down in his own thoughts and didn't even appear to hear him. Alex was relieved. He knew he was just talking to talk, but this time he stayed silent. The tattoo artist then scratched his beard as if mysterious answers were hidden there. Let me show you something, kid. The man suddenly rolled up his sleeve to reveal a tattoo of a young woman's face. It was the second time in the last 24 hours that someone had done this to Alex, and he almost revealed a huge smile at the oddness of this reality. This is a tat I did of my wife, Jane. It's been almost 12 years since she died. Caught in what he felt was an uncomfortable situation, Alex nervously replied, Oh, I'm sorry. To his surprise, the man replied with enormous laughter. Come on, kid. I'm not showing you the tattoo to bum you out. Besides, like I said, it was over a decade ago. I'm just telling you a story. Every time I face doubt or sadness, I look at her face. This woman gave me the happiest and saddest moments of my life. Well, besides my son. But kids are a different roller coaster altogether. Anyway, when she died, I didn't know what to do with myself, and I cursed every fucking god that does and doesn't exist. Then, at one point, somewhere around the rock bottom of a bottle, I realized the feeling of sadness was a testimonial to me being happy. I don't even recall how this came to me. The wheel keeps turning, no matter what you do. And although you might think sadness is the element that doesn't belong, the truth is, it's the essential part, same as happiness. He laughed and started singing a song that Alex didn't know. Wheel is turning and you can't slow down. You can't let go and you can't hold on. You can't go back and you can't stand still. If the thunder don't get you, then the lightning will. He laughed when he finished singing, clearly recalling some memory and almost forgetting that Alex was still there. Anyway, kid, I guess the tattoo helps to remind me to be aware of what sadness is, so that I can be happy, if that makes any sense. I guess I'm the same as my son. We both love having roles in a cheap romantic comedy. As Alex was listening, he straightened in his chair. That's the same as dharma. I thought you said you didn't like, how did you say it, yin-yang crap? But okay kid, I'll bite, what's dharma? Alex hadn't deeply understood the concept. But now, after hearing the guy's tattoo story, both dharma and what Mr. Wright had said about being aware of your sadness made sense. Alex replied, finally excited to have something sort of wise to add to their conversation. Dharma in Buddhism is this habituation of trying to change your negative thinking. The point of it is to embrace suffering to help you be more compassionate and happy. It's like mental training. It just clicked with me because your tattoo is like your dharma to remind you to be happy. So, more abstractly, dharma, which is sort of like embracing suffering, is like a tattoo of something emotionally painful to rewire your mind using compassion to help you reverse any negative thoughts. So, I suppose being like the Buddha is a journey of embracing the suffering of your tattoo's meaning every day. Alex was now looking off past the man, thinking aloud. This time, it was the tattoo artist who didn't know what to say. Again, kid, I have no damn idea what you're talking about. You're an odd bird. What are you doing in this neighborhood anyway? His comment made Alex realize how late it was. He'd almost forgotten he still had to sneak back into the house without getting caught, and honest, One might even say, happy, laugh escaped him. And in that second, his favorite quote from earlier appeared back in his head. If this isn't nice, I don't know what is. The tattoo artist seemed confused, but laughed. What in the hell are you talking about now, kid? Slight panic suddenly shook Alex. How long have I been wandering the streets, he thought. He'd only escaped to see if he was the only one struggling to find happiness. But he found something he never knew existed. The ability to free your mind so it can think whatever it wants to think and converse with whomever you wanted to converse. To Alex, it all felt liberating and incredible. A pure, hedonistic pleasure. He quickly stood up and thanked the tattoo artist for the conversation. As he reversed his paths back through the city, Alex began to notice the unpleasant feeling coming back. He searched his mind for an appropriate happiness quote that he hadn't yet tapped in his journeys this day and was greeted by one from Voltaire by his subconscious. Optimism is the madness of insisting that all is well when we are actually miserable. This morning, he wouldn't have admitted he was miserable. He'd just have called himself curious about understanding happiness. But with each step towards home, He knew this day trip would not be enough to quash the misery he felt. Thinking back to the conversation with the tattoo artist, and how amazing that unplanned exchange had made him feel, his dread continued to increase. There is no greater pain than to remember, in our present grief, past happiness. God damn it, he was starting to annoy himself with these quotes. Besides, he knew what he had to do. But this time, he didn't need a Dante quote or anyone else's wisdom to help him decide. Back at home, Alex felt a rush he'd never felt before. He now had the clearest vision he'd ever had for his life, even though he'd thought about exactly none of the details. He simply must continue the journey of discovery he started today. Staying in this home was like a prison for his mind. Although he didn't blame his parents for anything, he knew he had to evolve in his own way now. Alex could barely fall asleep. He was ready. It was time to start a new life filled with uncertainties in search of suffering to find happiness. The next morning, Alex packed his things and went straight out without talking to anybody. Fear tried to kick in with every next step away from the safety net of his home, but he wouldn't turn around. The wheel kept on turning. He entered the tattoo shop and found the tattoo artist reading the newspaper. Before giving him a chance to speak, Alex asked, listen, can you give me a tattoo? And this time, I mean it. The man answered ironically with a snicker, sure kid, what do you want, yin yang on your arm? Actually, I have just the thing. He gestured to a printout pinned on his wall titled the mother of all cliches tattoo. It was a joke that some tattoo artist mocked up of a single, ridiculous tattoo that weaved in all the classics. Lots of infinity symbols, a dream catcher, a dead pet tribute, an anchor, birds rising out of feathers, a dandelion seeding in the wind, and of course, some emotional, religious, and motivational scripted text. Actually, you won't believe it, but my buddy just told me someone actually got that thing tattooed on them my god man alex took a book out of his bag and sat down in the chair no if you could just tattoo this sentence on my arm so i also will have something to remind me the tattoo artist took his glasses and looked at the line you and your quotes kid all right if you say so they decided on a font and a price and the man got started as he was tattooing the letters onto alex's forearm he asked You never told me your name, kid. It's... Alex stopped as he thought about his full name. Alexander Sidney Hollingsworth III. He had to get rid of his name. He felt this was a symbolic gesture in the final step to starting entirely from scratch. He already hated Alexander, so he thought about his middle name, Sidney. But even that sounded a bit too formal. So then he decided, my name is Sid sat in his office right after he finished his Skype chats with two of his clients. As he hung up, he caught a glimpse of the tattoo sticking out from underneath his rolled up shirt sleeve. The tattoo made him think about what brought him to this point running a publishing company. For six years after leaving home, he wandered around the country observing people, trying to learn about suffering and happiness. He'd wake up every day with back pain, an empty stomach or worse. He took odd jobs in mechanic shops, farms, and just about every other place he could find to have a place to sleep and get some food. He would trade his time for sustenance and make only enough to stay alive so that he could evolve and learn. He often thought of giving up, but he never once let himself fall back onto his safety nets, his educational laurels, or the comforts of his previous life. It wasn't until he was in his mid-30s that he finally reached what he thought of as a moment of clarity and understanding of true happiness. Just like that old tattoo artist, he decided to start his own business. For Sid, that was a publishing company focused on helping quality writers reach their highest potential. He found that by engaging in this, his own brand of mental hedonism, it would reduce the suffering he felt in life. From his privileged upbringing and extremely high quality of personal education, Sid realized during his journeys that he was a far better writer than almost anyone he met. Also, the vast number of quality books he'd read made him a well-rounded thinker and writer. So becoming first an editor and eventually a publisher was a natural path. Books and the writers behind their pages had given him everything and kept him going all those years when he'd felt trapped. So, in a way, this career path was almost a spiritual choice towards doing what he felt he owed back, the service of developing and putting good ideas into the world. Sid had spent his years learning to be able to better question society's definition of happiness and success and with a handful of tools to more deftly define what the good life was for him. He knew now that you couldn't just decide to be happy by thinking positive thoughts. Like a skill, happiness must be earned. And one part of that skill was embracing the reality that suffering is always present in our lives. Sid often wondered why people need the bad to appreciate the good. What a funny twist of human nature. Nevertheless, in the real world, we twist happiness into something that isn't possible. There never will be a moment where the job is done and there's nothing you need to do to stay happy. It's a state of mind that takes practice your whole life to maintain a positive balance. Forced happiness isn't real happiness. It's an illusion that makes us feel better for a while just to end up feeling disappointed for not being able to reach it. He walked to the window and observed a colossal statue in the new section of the park right across the street from his office building. The new marble shone brightly in the moody uplighting intended to add drama to the piece at night. Sid remembered back to the opening ceremony and the confusion when the statue was finally revealed. The statue had no face. In fact, it looked like it was hastily wiped off in an artistic flourish. Now, observing the statue again from his office, Sid wondered what the purpose was of this faceless statue. Recalling his past, the first thing he wanted to know was if the artist of this statue understood the detachment of suffering through dharma and compassion. The faceless image would make sense to him in that context. While returning to the table, another flashback came. It was of a particularly stressful day about a year after his journey began. Even though it was so many years ago, He could still smell the exhaust in his nostrils. Hell, he could still taste it. It had been one of those rare days that the tattoo, his personal manifestation of dharma, did not affect him at all. Tears had quietly rolled down his face as he failed to embrace the suffering. Practice, it would seem, does not always make perfect. He snapped himself out of his reverie. On his desk was a large envelope with a new manuscript. He'd been waiting for this one. But now that it was actually here, he was unsure about even opening it, let alone reading it. But either way, it would have to wait. It was time to go home. He'd done his part for the day. Sid rubbed his eyes and rolled up his sleeve all the way past his elbow to look at the tattoo that read, if this isn't nice, I don't know what is. A satisfied smile grew slowly on his face as he read the quote a few more times before buttoning the sleeve back. He and this tattoo had some serious history together. He was doing what he loved to do every day and embracing the hard times and tough decisions that inevitably came with the good. What could be nicer than that? The Evolve Faster Podcast is written, produced, and performed by Scott Ely. Many episodes are also co-written with the help of Antonio Rosich. It takes an enormous effort to produce all the quality, original content needed for this podcast. Your support would be greatly appreciated, and you can learn about multiple ways to do so by going to evolvefaster.com forward slash subscribe. Here you'll find direct links to review and give the podcast five stars on key platforms like iTunes and share it on social media. These are free to do, but are critical to audience growth. And the only way to find out about new seasons is to register your email, so please do so. You will only receive valuable content and information on upcoming seasons and products. And finally, if you're benefiting from the Evolve Faster podcast, direct financial support at whatever amount you can afford is important for our survival. Running ads on a channel for free-thinking content is an inherent conflict of interest. So if you want the podcast content to remain unhindered by commercial interests and stay edgy and raw, then direct support is the best and only path to content independence. Also, writing and production of each episode of the Evolve Faster podcast is a major undertaking spanning many months. It's a labor of love, but it does need your help to survive. So please consider becoming a subscriber at evolvefaster.com forward slash subscribe. Your help and support are greatly appreciated and are what makes this podcast possible. Isn't it time for an upgrade? It's time to evolve faster.